Good morning, everyone. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. So glad you could join us today. When we think of the challenges facing Minnesota and the world, it is easy to get discouraged. We can see the climate crisis and our warming temperatures and wild weather nationwide. We watch housing prices rise, gun violence increasing, landfills filling up with our trash. We're grappling with a widening gap between rich and poor and persistent racial inequality. It's easy to throw up our hands and think, I'm just one person. What can I do? Well, some people don't throw up their hands. They dive right into these wicked problems. This hour, I'm talking with some of these leaders and how they hope to make a difference. And I want to hear from you as well. The phone lines are open. What are some of the big challenges that you feel Minnesota faces? And what solutions do you see coming from your neighborhood or community? The phone lines are open. You can call us at this number, 651 651- Two two seven six thousand. Again, the number is six five one two two seven six thousand. You can also call eight hundred two four two twenty eight twenty eight, or reach out on Twitter. You can tweet me at Angela Davis MPR. Let's bring in our guest. We have with us in the studio, Dr. Nisha Bochway, the dean of the Hubert H. Humphrey School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota. She holds master's degrees in public health and urban planning and a PhD in urban planning. And we talked about a year ago on the show when she first started the job. Dean Bochway, I'm so glad to have you back in with us to have a chance to dig a little bit deeper into what the Humphrey School does. Good morning. Good morning. It's great to be with you, Angela. And you brought along two graduate students. Let me tell you about them. We have with us Nathan Jidey Detweiler, a second year student in the Humphrey School's Master of Development Practice Program and president of the Public Affairs Student Association. He'll graduate this spring. Hi, Nathan. Hi, it's great to be with you. Hi, good to meet you. And Ruby DeBellius is with us. Ruby is a second-year student in the Humphrey School's Master of Science in the Science, Technology, and Environmental Policy Program, also graduating this spring. Hi, Ruby. Nice to meet you. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So, Dean Botway, I'm going to start with you with just a few questions about uh, what is going on uh, at the school. Last year, when you and I talked, you were just starting your new job as the dean. Um, In general, how do you describe how the first year has gone for you? The first year has been nothing short uh, of a fantastic gift. The Humphrey School has the best faculty, students, staff, our alum, 6,126 of them, (laughs) are all making impacts throughout the Twin Cities, the state, the nation, and the world. Um, And, you know, perhaps what I would say most is that What we have been able to do at the Humphrey School in this last year is a continuation of what we've done for the history of the school, which is Mm -hmm. that we train leaders to advance the common good in our diverse world. And those leaders just don't have impacts within the walls of the school, but they go out throughout the globe to bring the Humphrey School value everywhere. It's real. I, I, I love the op- optimism and the hope, but it's real. Um, we know the Humphrey School's mission, um, as you just mentioned, to train people to create some new solutions to the world's most complex problems. And uh, I use the term wicked problem. We got that from the Humphrey School. <laughs> Dean Bochway, so what kinds of problems are, are, and challenges are you all focusing on? Oh, so the, the wickedest ones. <laughs> <laughs> Start the list. Okay, that's right. Um, so we know uh, that we continued um, to see entrenched economic and racial inequities, mm-hmm. disruptions caused by climate change, uh, disasters, both natural and uh, man-made, global tensions, health disparities. There are a host of problems that 
we address. And and I want to just highlight that it's not just that we focus on the problem, but we're driving to solution. Our um, our uh, our final point is not okay. Do we understand the problem? Our endpoint is what is the solution, and not what is the easy solution, but what's the right solution. As we navigate through difficult conversations, mm. and uh, more about how the the program works, uh, the Humphrey School offers graduate degree programs at the U. And so, uh, what are some very specific programs that, yes. that people can can focus on? So we have uh, our Masters of Public Policy program, Masters of Public Affairs, that's targeted to uh, professionals who are working and wanting to come back to continue their important education. We have our Masters in Urban and Regional Planning, mm-hmm. uh, Masters in science, technology, and environmental policy, master's in development practice, and master's in human rights, in addition to our PhD program. And then we have a host of certificate programs that I'm happy to tell you about that allow um, professionals to come back in, get that information and the training they need at you know in a short burst, and mm-hmm. then go back out and implement it. Some of my friends have done that as well. We're already getting some phone calls, and so oh, I, I want to get into this topic because it is on a lot of people's minds. Uh, Debo, I'll start with you on this. Uh, the climate crisis and environmental justice, issues that are important to you personally and to the school. Why is that? So I'm, I was born in Jamaica, uh, grew up between Jamaica and Miami, and I would often talk about my coral reef uh, <laughs> just off Doctors Cave Beach, for those of you who are listening, uh, who are big Jamaica fans in Montego Bay. And I was just always concerned about just the health of the reef and trying to understand how that ecosystem would support um, the broader island nation, both with fisheries and tourism and a whole host of things. And what I saw over time was not just the um, uh, the the destruction of the coral reef um, and not because of the specific things that were happening with the coastal development in Jamaica, but the overall climate change um, and the impacts on the health of that reef and thus the health of the people. And this was years ago. This was years ago. This mm-hmm. was 20, 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've seen the con- the continued negative impacts of the climate. Um, that is, again, not just the direct results of what the people on that island nation are doing, but the overall economic and political structures that our society is engaged in. All right. With that, I want to take a phone call uh, before we continue with questions uh, with our guest from the Humphrey School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota talking about uh, training the next generation, this generation of of leaders to address some of the world's biggest problems. The number to call is 651-227-6000 or 800-242-2828 as we talk about some of the big problems in Minnesota and the world and what solutions that you see uh, that could be coming. Let's take this phone call uh, from Minneapolis right now. This is Dale on the phone. Dale, thank you for phoning in. And what did you want to ask or share? Uh, well, I in 2000, I got uh, environmentally woke uh, during the Gore campaign. And uh, so I was running a rental property business at the time. And I changed the name to Green Rock Apartments. And we're green and we rock. And uh, <laughs> so we, we started uh, putting solar panels up, charging uh, car charging stations, um, everything. So we have community gardens. Uh, we The tenants even get free toilet paper because I can choose the product. Uh, I can do 100% uh, uh, post-consumer waste toilet paper or, or local-made eco-soaps. Um, we have um, garden spaces for all the tenants. We have uh, over 200,000 watts of solar installed over the last decade. 
Uh, we do affordable housing through Minneapolis 4D program. Um, I could spend six hours talking about all the stuff we do, but I even ran for office last uh, last year uh, because uh, the environment needs Ooh. to be brought to the forefront. And Dale, do you think so, this is, you know, I described it as one of the problems that keeps a lot of us awake at night. Do you see that in your circle of friends or just people that you talk with regularly that thinking about the climate crisis? Oh, oh yes. And the kids, too. I mean, I talked yes. to my 20 somethings that, that are tenants and I'm encouraging them and educating them through our newsletters and communications. And I asked one girl, uh, you know, well, how do you feel about this? What are your friends say about this? And then she said, well, we're pretty all nihilistic about the whole thing mm. because we don't see anybody doing anything. We're all just waiting to die. And I'm like, oh, heck mm. no. Yeah, I have. No, you what, don't want to hear what, that. All right. No, what, what he'll thank you, do is Thank you, Dale. I want to uh, talk to our guest about this. Um, and beginning with you, uh, uh, Dean Botway, you know, what are some of the barriers that make it hard to solve problems like climate change and or, you know, like vast economic inequalities? Like what makes it feel like can we, you know, do something to change the direction that we're going? Yeah. So Mayor Carter said it really well. Uh, at the mayor's breakfast a few weeks ago, that the only thing people hate more than the status quo is change. And Mm -hmm. as we think about the change that we need to make, um, it's going to take us in a new direction. Uh, There are going to be resource shifts. There are going to be new patterns that we need to to take. And and I think we just have to be able to engage in some of the lessons that we've learned in our environmental policy program at the Humphrey School, whether it's the work that Dave Woolsey has been doing in Guatemala or work that other faculty have been doing across the world to be able to um, highlight some of those solutions. I know that Nathan's been mm-hmm. doing some work in that space. I'd love to hear and some of his thoughts, We need to too. be willing to embrace change as individuals. Absolutely. Right. And um, Nathan, um, as we talk uh, about you know what you're studying, uh, you decided to focus on environmental and climate issues and sustainable development. Why is that? Yeah, great question. Um, I think for me, actually, I come to this from being really concerned about humans. And I started off being really concerned around human migration and increasingly saw climate change as a driver of human migration. And so really wanting to address climate change as a way to be sensitive to how it is people are able to live, uh, how people are able to live and and live a life that's meaningful and brings dignity to them. Um, So for me, questions around sustainability really get to questions of equity and how it is that we uh, treat people within our society and and more broadly globally. In the int- introduction, I said that you're a second year student in the Humphrey School's Master of Development Practice Program. I know that you grew up in Western Africa and then went to high school uh, in the country of South Africa. How did that experience affect your interest in uh, climate justice and development? Totally. Um, I think for me, I so I grew up uh, right off of the equator and pretty quickly started to hear about how. Uh, climate change and changes to the way rainfall was um, happening was was changing farmers' abilities to grow crops. Mm. And that became a very clear indication of, yeah, something's shifting. We really need to address that. Um, and how do we address that? And I think what I've learned, uh, and back to the question around wicked problems, mm-hmm. what I've learned is that really a lot of these problems intersect with each other. And so mm-hmm. they're so wicked because they're 
nestled into each other and they're they're layered into each other. I have to ask you, what is a development practice degree? (laughs) What was that? (laughs) This is a great dinner conversation question. (laughs) The way I describe it is uh, it's a program that really gives you an interdisciplinary way of addressing how uh, to change the way that we uh, continue to to grow within society uh, and economically grow. So uh, it's incredibly interdisciplinary. I've taken courses in public policy, obviously, public health uh, at the ag school. And, and the idea is to use these different knowledge systems to create sustainable change that allows us to to create a world in which more people have access to that life that they want to live. And uh, and just the way you speak, uh, you firmly believe change is possible, that we can get to a better place. Absolutely. And I think I'm, I'm convicted of that by the work that I see so many people involved in and also by uh, what feels like an urgency. You know, we, we talked earlier about how Children are, uh, and not just children, but all younger folks tend to be really focused on the climate crisis. I think there's a passion and there is a nihilism, but that that nihilism can shift to passion uh, to address it. And I've seen many examples of that. Ruby, you're a second year student uh, in the Humphrey School's Master of Science in Science, Technology and Environmental Policy program. Again, sounds very impressive. Um, But you first, you know, you got involved with uh, the policy school uh, through the school's undergraduate program just after your junior year up at the University of Minnesota Morris. So tell me about that experience and, and what was going on. How did that shape your final year of college and the direction that you've chosen to take? Yes, absolutely. And I think I kind of need to go back a little further to explain Mm -hmm. how I even ended up going to this program. It's called the PPIA JSI, um, Public Policy and International Affairs Junior Summer Institute. And um, I... And how old were you at that point? I was 20, I believe, 21 possibly. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that was the summer before my senior year of undergrad. Um, But I'd actually only switched my major to political science the beginning of my junior year. Um, I was a biochemistry major for the first two years of college. And Mm -hmm. I just really loved science. I loved scientific knowledge. I thought that, you know, this is the key to understanding problems. Um, But then as I did undergraduate research in that space and kind of thought more about what my career options were from that point. Um, I realized I'm just more of like a social being. I care about social issues, but I just want to put that scientific lens on it. Mm -hmm. And so only two months into my major change is when I applied for this program. And I basically had to say, I have no experience in this field, but here's my background. Take a chance on me. Um, And the Humphrey School did. And that was really instrumental in just changing my path into really focusing on what I wanted to do because it was a seven-week intensive, basically crash course in graduate school. So we took classes on statistics, economics, qualitative research methods. We had a research symposium. um, And then we also had a capstone in which we picked a a wicked problem to address. And so mine was um, healthcare focused. So we looked at the opioid crisis, um, specifically in West Virginia, because that was the state Mm -hmm. that was most impacted. Um, And that was really the first time I kind of was like, okay, this is what I can do with a poli-sci degree other than be an attorney or work in public (laughs) office. Like, this is what public policy is. Well, that's a good question. So you're one of the people like Nathan running towards the fire. Like, I'm going yes. to, to, to do something about this. So why go to graduate school? Why did you want to continue this and, 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 and pursue this on a graduate school level? Yes. And I think um, an important part of how I got back into school was um, my career. So I started off 
pretty much right after um, graduation working for Senator Klobuchar um, as a staff U.S. assistant. Senator Amy Klobuchar. Senator mm-hmm. Amy Klobuchar, yep. I started as a staff assistant at the front desk. I did two and a half years of casework and internship coordinator. And then the last year and a half, I've been in outreach. And so I really got an opportunity to see what does a state office of a federal senator do? What are the pathways that people can engage in policy and, you know, have resources and connect with their representatives. And as I'm learning all of this, I'm thinking, you know, what's my role? How can I help? How can I move the needle forward a little bit? And when I got to this place of like, okay, I understand this part of the system, but now when I need to think about how can I, how can I be a part of the change of that system? I needed, I needed more information, more knowledge. And so that's what drew me to the Humphrey. And we heard the caller, our first caller talk about the climate crisis. And uh, I've talked about the anxiety that a lot of us have. And we know a lot of young people worry about it. And what are your thoughts about what can be done and and how we should be approaching what's happening uh, to the earth? Absolutely. I think um, I recently have found my passion for environmental justice. Um, I took a class last semester with uh, Dr. Fiola Jacobs, which was very transformative. And I'm in an environmental justice world making class right now. And I think Land use is really the center of a lot of our issues. I think, you know, how we, who gets to decide how we use land? What do we use it for? What is the impact? Like, what's happening on that land? Is it creating pollution? Can we create less pollution? Can people mm-hmm. live here? Can they not? Are we farming? Is that creating emissions? I think that is really the, the focus of what I'm trying to understand is, you know, how can we change how we use our land and to give more resources to make it more accessible for people to to benefit from that? And I think... One of the biggest things that I think about in this is community stakeholders and just community-based participatory research. How do we get not just the community and local people engaged in decision-making, but at the center of decision-making? Because when you boil it down, the local level, the people who are living in these areas are Mm -hmm. the ones who need to have a say in what's being built around them, you know, what's, what's happening in their neighborhoods. And I think you know, a really good example right now of that fight is um, the East Phillips neighborhood and the urban farm project that's trying to go through. In, I, in Minneapolis? Yes. Tell us about that. Um, so I don't want to misrepresent anything, but my my understanding of the issue is that this neighborhood had some plans to transform this old roof depot site, which used to be a arsenic Superfund site, um, into an urban farm that has affordable housing and commercial business businesses and, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, solar panels and things like that. Um, and the city of Minneapolis um, would like to turn that into a public works facility instead. And so there's this, been there's this a f- debate on what's the best way to Absolutely. use this space. Yes. Right? And it's actually at a kind of a crisis point right now because they were supposed to start demolition last week. Um, but a judge just granted a um, temporary stay on that to see if mm. to let them file it out, an right. emergency appeal. And that's an example, Dimitri, of of people standing up and saying, "No, I want to s- have a, a stake in this. I want I have something to say, and I want to understand the options better." That's right. That's right. Yeah. And and that's so important for our communities. Uh, whether you have a Humphrey degree, and those of you who don't, you're always welcome to come and get one. Um, <laughs> uh, and <Thank> and <laughs> others um, to know that their voice is powerful, that they can engage in problems and challenges that are of concern to them and make headway to create change. And change doesn't have to be kind of a big swoop, swoop um, solution, but change is, um, is creating something that's new and different um, that moves you from where you are yesterday to where you can be today. It doesn't have to be big. It just has to be forward progress. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the things, Angela, you said at the very beginning of the show is that people are concerned that 
uh, they're in this alone, uh, that they can't. What can I do? What can they, you know, what can I do? And I have to say, I'm a big Star Trek Discovery fan. Okay. (laughs) All right. (laughs) And uh, I'm trying not to give a spoiler here, but in the last episode of the last uh, season, I think it's season four or five, um, uh, the actors are trying to explain who they are as a people. Um, uh, that are part of this federation. And what they say is that we are each one, but together we are one. Mm-hmm. And that notion that, yes, we individually are one, and together powerfully we are one um, collective that can advance a better society. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just, I love that idea. It goes back to the phrase I use often, Ubuntu, mm-hmm. that I am because we are. And without Ruby, without Nathan, Angela, without you and this fantastic show, we can't advance the good work that we really need to to make sure that the Twin Cities, the state, the nation, and the world realizes the kind of climate justice um, for the people who most need it and for everyone. Um, that, that's critical. I'm curious, uh, Nathan, what's it like to be in class when you're, <laughs> again, I am one, but uh, I am one with these other classmates who all sort of have this passion and desire to move forward to take steps forward yeah i think it's a extremely creative space to be in um i think as as we've highlighted even just this morning we come from a variety of different backgrounds but the opportunity to share those backgrounds be that be that from someone who grew up in minnesota or someone who grew up overseas um to share the many gifts that we do bring to that collective change. Um, I think I really, uh, a way that that was centered for me was, you know, I was really focused on climate change work uh, and had a peer who had grown up in the labor movements uh, talk about the centrality of paying people a livable wage and that that is an essential part of addressing the climate crisis. I would have never come to that on my own. So you're learning from each other, the students at the Humphrey School. All right. Well, if you're just joining us, we're talking about the work that is taking place at the Hubert H. Humphrey School of Public Affairs there at the University of of Minnesota in Minneapolis and how it is training new leaders to tackle big, complex problems. And I want to hear from you. We're taking your phone calls. What are some of the challenges that you feel Minnesota faces? Uh, What solutions do you see coming from your neighborhood or community? You can call us at 651 Two two seven six thousand, or you can call eight hundred two four two twenty eight twenty eight. You can also leave me a message on Twitter. I'm at Angela Davis MPR. Before we go to news, let's take a phone call from a listener in Bloomington. We have John on the phone. Good morning, John. Thank you for calling. Good morning. Hey, go ahead. Well, the one thing, as you guys discuss this, we're running into the same problem with our product. Is that quite often in the climate solutions, everybody goes, well, you need to have this really complex solution. Well, our solution is really simple. We just redesigned the solid two-by-six stud, put some holes in it so it's more energy efficient, and it has supply chain benefits for CO2 emissions all the way back up the chain. chain. And when we go to pitch it to individuals and companies, they look at it and go, well, that's too simple. That can't work. It's so, like, well, yeah, it is. It is simple, and it and it does work, and it has all these benefits from the home all the way back to the mill. But it just quite often people say they want to change; they don't necessarily want to change, even if the change is very, very simple. So, uh, John, again, this is a, a stud that is uh, going to allow us to save energy. It, it helps to better insulate our homes. Yes, 
it would raise the insulation value of the outside wall by 30 to over 120%. Just by taking the wood out of the stud that doesn't need to be there, and you let insulation fill in and take its place, Mm -hmm. um, you reduce the thermal bridging is the technical term. But it's very simple. It's easy for builders to implement. And it has all kinds of extra benefits. And you're saying and the, sim- looks- the, the simplicity of, it, of, of an idea can sometimes create uh, skepticism. Exactly. Mm. All right. Thank you. That's John in Bloomington. Um, I mean, this is very technical to me, but uh, you're all nodding like, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. this sounds, what do, you, what do you think about what he's saying, uh, Ruby? I think I'm just thinking about other examples of small changes we can make that have yeah. a big impact. Mm-hmm. I think in one class we just talked about, you know, if you put up a sign that just encourages people to recycle, like the per- huge yeah. percentage that of people who, because they see this sign, will be like, okay, I'll I'll do it for the collective good. Or A you reminder, know, like I was thinking about it, but exactly, not, oh, there's another reminder. Exactly. Or just, you know, just simple things we can do um, that don't take a lot of time or energy. And, and another example example would be maybe on the um, commercial level or take, taking microbeads out of face wash. You know, those can't, Why? they can't disintegrate. They are that. going into the ocean. Yes, they are killing sea life. Like they are just, but they're everywhere. They're the tiniest pieces of plastic and plastic does not decompose for hundreds of years. And so we just have just basically sand of plastic all over the earth right now. So the skincare products you're talking about yes. that advertise microbeads because it's good for scrubbing. Exfoli- yes, exactly. Exfoli- so now I try that, to stay I away. I didn't know that. Yeah, I know. And people don't. And I think if people knew more about these simple things they could do that help the environment, they would do them. It's just, mm. you know, getting that message out there, I think, is also part of, you know, what's what's wrong is just these messages are really hard to, to get mm-hmm. to people. Uh, and Dean, what do you think about that phone call? Uh, the simplicity sometimes of ideas or small changes that, that can be met with skepticism. So I think the, the pivot that we need to make is, uh, is to figure out not just what is that simple solution that can easily be implemented, um, but then how does that implementation happen? Because when you think about supply chain and production processes, um, it's going to require a shift in drilling the hole and uh, in, in adding whatever the additional installation is. It's going to re- require a shift in implementation. So, you know, our changes that we're proposing, whether it's around microbeads, whether it's around uh, these two by fours, uh, whether it's by way of an actual policy solution, we have to also think through the implementation steps and bring those people on board so those decision makers can can do the work. Gabe Chan, who's one of our faculty in science, technology, and environmental policy, he's been working on rural co-ops, um, energy co-ops, and he's been doing fantastic work in that space. And one of the things that he's been magical um, uh, in doing is making sure that those communities, those leaders, not just the individuals who can see the change, but the residents in those communities are on board in how things can be implemented, these simple solutions. And Nathan, anything else you want to add to that? Just that I think that John's point is entirely right, that there's a, you know, there's a confluence of uh, actors who address these issues. And we have individual options and we also have collective options. And I think it is absolutely true that there is there are actions that we can take as individuals to move towards these things as well. And Crystal, we're going to take a phone call right now from Bethany. Bethany, thank you for waiting. And what do you want to share as we talk about uh, how we can solve some of the big problems in the world? Hi, Angela. Thanks so much for taking my call. Um, I want to talk about the sticky problem of, uh, of migration and especially of the realities of asylum seekers are facing in the U.S. 
we hear a lot on the national news about what's happening at the border, but like most people don't realize there are thousands and thousands of asylum seekers living in Minnesota. Um, and there are no large scale solutions to meet even their basic needs because uh, they're actually not allowed to work for a big part of their uh, period of seeking asylum. Um, and so I help lead a, a small faith-based ministry where we provide housing and basic needs for 13 people. But most of the solutions I'm seeing are happening from everyday neighbors, like faith communities, and a huge amount of support coming from immigrant neighbors who have been here maybe only a few years longer, uh, who are coming together to like make basic solutions happen for people who are fleeing for their lives. Mm. So is this something that, that you want to see more people take an interest in and, and do something to try to help, Bethany? Well, I mean, we would love to see policy solutions, right? Mm-hmm. Like, we don't need to have there be a wait for people to be able to get a work permit. Uh, mm-hmm. So, like, um, ultimately, sort of basic needs shouldn't be a problem for folks. But because they are, because the government hasn't stepped up to find a solution, is actually making things harder for people. Uh, what I see is that, like, neighbors are the, are the only ones who are able mm-hmm. to do it. Folks rely on the kindness of strangers. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so, like, I, I want people out there to know that, like, you can do something about it. You don't have to just, like, feel really sad about what's happening at the border. Thank you, you Bethany. have some neighbors. So, uh, Dean Botway, um, issues of immigration and policy surrounding that, is that something that is discussed in, in classes there at the Humphrey School? It absolutely is. Uh, and, Bethany, your point is uh, right on. The individual acts, as Nathan highlighted, um, are so important to the work that you and your neighbors are doing are critical in that direct service and support of these individuals who are seeking um, seeking support and, and a new home. In addition to the work you and your neighbors and all of us can do in trying to advance new and better policies. And so I just want to encourage all of you who are listening, yes, do that direct work, human to human, supportive work, and Engage the decision makers in your communities to create better policies so the systems by which our society are designed and operate, operate and support us to thrive, everyone, uh, not just those who the system currently is designed to support. And Ruby, what are you seeing from your point of view about uh, policy change? I mean, working in a U.S. senator's office. Yes, I feel like this is one of the great examples of where my um, education at the Humphrey and my career at the senator's office sees an intersection. Because when I was in the casework area, um, one of our, our biggest casework area at the senator's office is immigration. And so we can send inquiries to the USAIS to say, can you please expedite this? Or what's the status of this? Um, and then in another class at the Humphrey, I was able to um, d- dive into um, climate refugees and kind of the U.S policy around asylum. And so right now we still only define asylum as people fleeing for basically political persecution. We don't define it as people who are migrating because of climate change. And so they've just labeled them as environmental migrants, but they can't really claim asylum as the U.S. government views it right now. Um, But over 70 percent of people fleeing and trying to get asylum are those who are leaving because of climate change. And I know this is Nathan's like big thing that he's focusing on. So I would love love to hear what Nathan wants to say on this topic as well. Immigration policy. Yeah. Uh, So I work at an immigration law firm right now and definitely share. uh, It is a challenging space to be in because it brings in so many different actors. Um, I, I hope that people come away with a sense of empathy and compassion, uh, realizing that the reason why a lot of people flee um, is because of destabilized 
countries. And I think at the root of that, and I think being at the Humphrey uh, has has enabled me to understand some of this, is different policy decisions that we've made as a country in terms of our foreign policy at various points. Um, And I think there's, there's a question to ask around how is it that we support cleaning up some of the mistakes that we've fueled in the past and uh, as we look to the future, a big concern that I have um, is around where we're getting the minerals that we're going to use to move our transition towards a greener, um, a greener economy. Where are those minerals coming from and are the labor practices in those countries um, equitable uh, or is there forced labor uh, involved with the mining that ultimately um, we should be paying attention to because I do think we should. I want to take another phone call. Uh, in Farmington, we have Elizabeth on the line. Good morning, Elizabeth. What did you want to add to the conversation? Hi. Hi. So, uh, I saw a funny meme the other day, and it was Liam Hemsworth looking ticked, and it said, when my paper straw dissolves and another rich person takes a flight on their private jet. <laughs> and I just, I had to laugh because I used to be, and this is going to sound really bad, I used to be really conscious and I would like work really hard not to produce trash and be careful of what sort of processes my clothes and my food and all that stuff went through. And then I became a nurse. And the first week I was working, I realized I felt it was this disillusionment, like no matter what I do, it's not going to make a difference. This is one hospital. And this is our practice. Mm -hmm. Like, of all the hospitals out there, like my home and me myself is nothing compared to the waste mm-hmm. I see at work every day and the waste that I have to participate in in order to do my job, right? Right. So right. I just kind of feel like, what are your guys's? Because we're talking so much about the individual, and I love it, and I wish I wasn't so cynical. Um, you speak for a lot like, of people. Guys, yeah, the disillusionment. Well? Yeah, the disillusionment and, and feeling cynical and recognize I shouldn't be cynical, but but look what's happening. Uh, thank you. That's Elizabeth in Farmington. Um, Dean Botway, what, what's the first thing you would say in response to her comments? Elizabeth, you are um, providing sunlight on the uh, level of waste and um, um, uh, and you know inefficient use of resources, perhaps in your hospital. And that's the first step. It's identifying what is the problem and then working collectively with others to bring a solution forward. Um, Ryan Allen, our associate dean for research and one of our faculty, he was able to highlight um, some of the issues around undocumented immigrants not being able to get driver's licenses. So we know that about two-thirds of undocumented immigrants were driving to work without licenses um, because the policy was set up such that it, they weren't allowed to. And mm-hmm. his work was able to spotlight this as in addition to other individuals. And then collectively, um, many of you listening likely were a part of pushing for the recent um, uh, bill that was passed by the legislature to allow undocumented immigrants to apply for driver's licenses. Elizabeth, your work in identifying and spotlighting this as an issue, I encourage you to take the most important step, which is the next one, to create that policy change so you can see a more efficient hospital system. And that requires it to be a policy or systems change and not just an individual effort. Let's take um, a phone call from Plymouth right now. We've got Tim on the line. And and Tim, uh, we're talking about uh, big problems and also big solutions uh, as we talk with uh, uh, graduate students at the Humphrey School and the dean of the school. What did you want to share with us? 
Well, I happen to be a grad uh, of the Humphrey School of Government as well. And I've been working for 30 years in what I like to call the poverty industrial complex. And we live in a state that has the perhaps the greatest social capital um, in the country, who knows where else on the planet. And yet we have the second worst racial inequities. Mm-hmm. So the poverty industrial complex grows every year, but we haven't dented uh, these racial inequities in the 30 years that I've been working. So what role can the Humphrey School of Government do in calling the question of strategies and the investments we're, we're making? Thank you, Tim, um, a Humphrey grad. So if you just follow the headlines in the news, we have a, a state budget surplus of $17.5 billion. Mm-hmm. But we also have, as, as Tim pointed out, some of the worst racial disparities mm. in the nation. Uh, what are we supposed to make of that? And, and why are we not seeing more movement forward and, and, and narrowing those gaps? Uh, again, as we talk about people feeling disillusioned uh, and just mm-hmm. not very hopeful, uh, what would you say to, to, to his comments, Dean Bochway? Uh, Tim, you are, again, you have the best callers. Aren't they great? <laughs> I really do. I, I just, you know, facilitate the conversation, but people yes. have great questions and, and are, are curious. They, we want the state to be a better place. Yes. We all agree with that. Things can be better. Yes. Uh, and so, Tim, your point is is right on. Um, Nicole Hannah-Jones, the uh, creator of the 1619 Project, spoke to an almost uh, at-capacity crowd mm-hmm. at um, Northrop uh, this past December. And one of the things that we learned from her conversation is that we need to make visible the history. We need to make sure that um, the injustice and the anger and the um, uh, unfair experiences that our neighbors um, are realizing. And and I say neighbors in in the sense of the people who um, are in our broader community. Often um, we are segregated by income and race and we don't experience the um, uh, the the life experience of of those who are really in disparate um, experiences, and so what Nicole pointed out in her talk was that we really have to make visible that history, mm. and that's what her work does. And so, on that foundation of making visible that history, we can then create the better policies and the policies that have allowed us to remain in a um, in the space we're in. Um, are largely a result of not acknowledging the reality and the history of where we've come from um, and what the real issue is. So we can then move to the best solution to, you know, close these gaps and provide support for um, marginalized BIPOC first gen um, uh, immigrant populations. And what would you say to the thought of like, okay, let's look at what hasn't worked. (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> as we move forward. Do you see an opportunity there uh, of how we start to move forward and not just remain stuck with these huge gaps? Absolutely. And I feel like this question and the previous one kind of are hinting at the same thing. The first one was consumer versus the market. This one's individuals versus institutions. It's mm-hmm. all about who has the power and who has the power to make change. I think our institutions are founded on some probably pretty problematic principles. Um, for a long time, there wasn't any diversity in decision making. Mm-hmm. And Changing hundreds of years worth of precedent and institutions is very difficult. Um, But I'm also in a great um, politics um, class right now, and we're learning about institutions. And I think institutions are nothing without people. 
Like, mm-hmm. people exist outside of institutions, but if you don't have people, you don't have institutions. And so once you get the right people in the institutions, they can make the change. But I think those things happen very slowly, and there also has to be a willingness to do it. Mm-hmm. Because I think what people are thinking is that, you know, for other people to get something, I have to lose something. And that's mm-hmm. not true. Say that again. People, you don't have to lose anything for other people to have more, for there to be a social safety net, for the bottom line to be higher. Um, and I think, you know, we will argue about peanuts when it comes to social um, you know, programs, but then we won't blink an eye at one third of our budget going to the military or all of these other things that we just don't question. And I think the biggest thing about Humphrey students is that we are questioning those things. We're saying we're not beholden to the way things were. I have no buy-in in these institutions because I don't feel like they represent me. And so, you know, to be able to change these things and, you know, have more racial equality, more, um, you know, income equality, there has to be people who see that the things keeping us down need to change. And, mm-hmm. you know, challenging that doesn't mean that you, you know, can't, you can't see both sides. You can, you can, you can move forward um, and just be positive. And I think optimism is key. Nathan, you sound like me. I'm hearing you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, uh, <laughs> so what, are, I mean, like, what are your feelings about, like, again, an opportunity that we have? Because we do have resources and, and, and people with good intentions. Are, um, you know, we have money. Yeah. What's missing? Yeah. Um, I think, I think what I think a lot about is, is coalitions and creativity. Um, and those two things for me are essential. So often we want to make decisions that feel like silver bullets um, to problems. And I think when we really bring together a diverse group of stakeholders and build a real true coalition, we, we come to realize that, yes, we, we can solve problems, but those problems are incremental. That change is incremental. Uh, and there aren't those silver bullets. And that's not sexy, uh, but it is the hard work of, of people or, or people movements and, and working towards social transformation. I do think that there is a great opportunity right now in Minnesota to redistribute some of those resources uh, to communities that previously haven't had access to them. Let's take a phone call uh, in Burnsville. Candace, uh, patiently waiting to, to get in on the conversation. Hi, Candace. Go right ahead. Hi. Hi. Um, I'm so glad that you're having this show today on this issue. I just wanted to highlight what our faith communities are doing. Um, there's an organization called Interfaith Creation Care South Metro, and that's about 15 churches um, in the south part of the metro area. And we are having an echo fair with the title, Yes, We Can Make a Difference, uh, next mm-hmm. Saturday on the 11th um, from 4 to 5.30. We're going to have exhibitors from all kinds of organizations that can help people go to the next step, you know, besides just recycling um, what, um, what more there is. And uh, we're going to have... Um, Jessica Hellman from the Institute of the Environment from the University of Minnesota give a little talk. Um, there will be door prizes with eco-friendly products. <laughs> and um, so just wanted to give a shout-out. That's going to be at the Prince of Peace Lutheran Church in Burnsville next Saturday. And it, it, it's, a, it's looking at, too at uh, climate change solutions. Is that right, Candace? Absolutely. We've got everything. We've got solar. We've got uh, lead in the water. We've got, you know, what people can do with uh, HVAC. Um, 
Okay. You know, yeah. Thank you, Candace. And uh, before we went out of time, I want to take another phone call in West St. Paul. Uh, Jenny is on the phone. And Jenny, what do you want to tell us about what you're seeing as both problems and solutions? Um, thank you so much. So um, during the height of the pandemic, when all of our kids were isolated after the murder of George Floyd, um, close family, friends, we were talking about what we can do to support our children and feeling alienated and isolated from their communities. So we co-founded a nonprofit called The Crew Urban Youth Equestrians, um, where we have opened a space for urban youth of color to learn how to train um, horses through emotional self-awareness and self-regulation. And we provide them with mindfulness tools and techniques to use, acknowledgement and validation of their emotions. And that's lovely. Open, that's that's building confidence you. in young people. <clears throat> Absolutely. And we have seen in the we're going into our third season of lessons and we have seen such positive transformational outcomes. Um, schools we've partnered with see increased attendance with their kids, mm. with their students. Um, we're seeing uh, more engagement in academics. We're seeing, um, you know, our children, especially those who've been impacted by trauma, um, you know, being able to um, take a breath, um, acknowledge and validate what they're feeling and look for, um, you know, ways to regulate and seek um, and Jenny, support from adults. Yeah, we're almost out of time. But tell me again, the name of your nonprofit. Um, we are the crew, uh, urban youth equestrians and the crew is, um, stands for Community Relationships, Empowerment, and Well-Being. All right. And we run our facility out of Hastings. Thank you. Thank you, Jenny, for calling in. Uh, Dean Boatwright, we only have a minute left. Yes. So uh, I do want to ask you about the state of the school speech, but um, you've got like maybe 45 seconds to tell me about it. <laughs> As a final thought here. Well, you know, I'll, I'll maybe just say two things. One, um, to Jenny, the work you're describing reminds me of the work that our grad Paul Williams does with uh, Project for Pride in Living um, and mm-hmm. his focus on housing stability and job readiness that, in your words, Angela, helps with transformational outcomes. And then the last thing I'll say is that, you know, the the takeaway from the state of the school and where we're heading at the Humphrey School is that student success is our number one priority, um, making sure that we are training graduating students who can go out into the world and create these kinds of policy systems and environmental changes so the rules by which society is governed allows everyone to thrive. We're glad you're there. The um, Hubert H. Humphrey School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota, we've been talking with the dean, Dr. Nisha Bochway, as well as two graduate students, Nathan Jidey Detweiler, right? A name to keep an eye on, as well as Ruby DeBellis. Going to keep my eye on you too, Ruby. Thank you for coming in today. This conversation was produced by Maya Beckstrom. We'll talk again tomorrow morning at 9. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.